All right, let's get started. <clears throat> right on time. Um, good. So how's everyone doing? Let's start with uh, questions about the project. So any questions about the project? Let's get back to let's get back to Lear then, and then we'll talk about Ran at the the end. Uh, so today we're going to talk more about like Lear, Cordelia, all that good stuff. Um, so let's go to Act Two, Scene Four to start. So going to two four. All right, and so let's trace what's happening from kind of uh, Act Two onward. Right, so Lear here in two four, um, he comes to uh, Regan's house. Um, and yeah, and, and it doesn't turn out well. So what is generally the plot? What is happening to Lear throughout Act Two? Or what, what, more broadly, what happens to Lear throughout the play? Exactly. So this is when uh, this is when she also wants him to reduce his staff, I think, from 100 to 50. And then it goes from 50 to 25. And then the daughters eventually together swear that they'll admit him, but no one else, no one to accompany him. OK. Um, and so let's see. Yeah, let's take a look at that. Uh, look at that more more clearly um let's jump into this is two four and we'll go to well sure we'll go to line 264 so this is uh lear's speech um and he's responding here to goneril and regan they, they've come together and, you know, Goneril says, Hear me, my lord, what need you five and twenty, ten or five, to follow in a house where twice so many have command to tend you? Regan says, What need one? And then Lear's response, O oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady if only to go warm with a gorgeous, why nature needs not why thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. 
But for true need, you heavens, give me the patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Okay. So, uh, and then he goes on, talking to the, the daughters. Know your natural hags. I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things. What they are yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I'll have full cause of weeping, but this heart. And then storm and tempest shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. So we have a few things going on in this speech. So let's unpack it. Um, and we'll take the, these first group of lines here. O oh, reason, not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing. Did we lose? Oh, okay, sorry, I thought the uh, computer went off. Um, anyway. O oh, reason, not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Um, okay, so what is what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, he's kind of comparing man to animals. So we get this this kind of um, the invasion of nature into human life. But his initial response: Oh, reason, not the need. So don't don't ask me for a, like a logical reason why I need people to to command me right because regan has a, a kind of a point i would think and you know this happens from goneril goneril in the scene or two scenes before what was the problem she had with lear's 100 does anybody remember kind of what the, the problem was Yeah, exactly. They they were rowdy. So it was kind of like, um, so, you know, my, my response when I first read that scene was, I, you know, I think Goneril might have a point. Now, she proves herself to be kind of an evil person. But, you know, here's this, uh, her father is demanding that he be tolerated and a hundred of his knights be tolerated with him. And they're causing a scene they're causing a bit of a mess in her castle so you know th that's that's the problem right is that um that there is a, a bit of disorder here it seems with with regan um there's this idea that he should really give up everything right it's time time to give up everything but whatever the the idea is that uh that there isn't a lot of rationale for Lear to have these people. They're disruptive, they cause problems, and uh, Goneril does have a point. You know, there's twice so many people in this house that will tend to you. You don't, you know, you don't need your 100 knights. We have twice as many people who will treat you like royalty, like part of the royal family that you are. Um, and his response to this is... Oh, reason, not the need. So don't, like, rationalize. That's what he's saying. Our basis beggars are in the poorest 
thing superfluous. End stop. So um, beggars, the, the poorest people, have superfluity. They, they, they do things for the sake of them. Right, that would be superfluous is unneeded things, right? It's it's something you have that's unneeded. You're saying even beggars go ahead. Jude, were you That's okay. Did you have something to say? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> no problem. Um But it's like even beggars want what they want. They want a little they want a little conspicuous consumption. We could say that, right? They want something for the sake of having it. Um, and there's this kind of idea of that Lear's sense of himself, which kind of makes him human, right? Having a sense of, of yourself, you know, very few animals have this, is attached to um, attached to this this privilege he has of, being able to go from castle to castle and being tolerated and being tolerated in the way he wants to be tolerated. So our basis beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Okay, so that's a confusing line, right? Um, allow not. Allow not really means if you don't allow right if you don't allow there's a there's a kind of unsaid conditional there if you don't allow nature more than nature needs man's life is cheap as beasts so that would be if you don't allow man's nature more than it needs more than just need that's what reduces humans to animals okay and so the the argument he's coming back with uh, it's beginning to be clear here is you know uh, uh, her response Goneril's response is as I said before perfectly rational you're disruptive you don't need these people anyway we'll just serve you and his argument is you know I I want these people because I want them you know I want this I want this uh, luxury because it is luxury that makes me more than an animal. Then he keeps going. This is line uh, two six seven. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous. Why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. Uh, okay, so if only to go warm were gorgeous. So wh how are we unpacking these lines? What do you think those mean? But how is he appealing to her? So if only to go warm, if only you were warm, 
that was gorgeous, that was appealing or attractive. Why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, right? You don't, your nature doesn't need um, the the kind of, uh, you know, let's, let's use modern terms like makeup or jewelry or whatnot to make thou gorgeous, to, to be appealing. Um, it doesn't even keep you warm. Right. The thing, the aspects of luxury, the aspects of appeal, they don't even keep you warm. Right. So his his appeal to her is. Um, it's it's smart because he is showing her how they're alike, right, how they each have these kind of conspicuous things, these luxuries that they like. And it's the luxuries not, you know, not their rational nature, but these kind of luxuries that allow them to become more than beasts, as he's saying. Um, but for Truni, you heavens, give me the patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely, touch me with noble anger, and let not woman's weapons, water drops, stain man's cheek. Know your natural hags. I will have such revenge on you both. So at that point, on line 270, but for true need, something changes. So the speech starts with this kind of argument as to what what is a man, right? What makes a man as opposed to what makes a beast? Um, and then it, it switches towards the end here. And what what's happening toward in the la- latter half of this speech? Yep, exactly. So, yeah, so he's... It's kind of being revealed to him, and so it's a, it's a turn towards anger, and um, and it's it's kind of a recognition of of what's happening before him, right? And he, yeah, and so he's saying, "Fool me not so much to bear it tamely," which means you know you've tr- you've tricked me before, don't trick me into taking it, right? So to speak, don't. Don't fool me into being ruled. I'll not be ruled. So then touch me with noble anger. So he's talking to the gods. Make me, you know, give me the kind of the endurance, the emotions to to push back against these people. Um, Don't make me cry over the loss of my daughters. Uh, And then he turns back to them again. Know you unnatural hags. I will have such revenge on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things. What are they yet? I know not, but I shall be the terrors of the earth. Um, and so the, before the speech ends, there is, you know, what here, like a storm and tempest. So some kind of sound effect indicating the storm. So we have a few elements here of kind of the natural, the unnatural, and you know, what, what makes a person, what makes an animal, um, what makes it a natural relationship between people and then this kind of external natural world responding. So when he refers to them as unnatural hags, what does that mean? Oh, no, you're unnatural hags. I will have such revenge on you both, dot, dot, dot. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. What would, what is their natural relationship to him? Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, the natural relationship is, is quite literally, he's their father. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's the biological thing going on here, right? The biological circumstances. He's their father. And so, you know, unnatural hags is they are not behaving with respect to this relationship as they should. You say they're not loving him. They're not treating him like a father. This sort of resonates with the third line of the speech, line 266. Allow not nature more than nature needs. And so there's these two concepts of nature already lying on top of each other. There's um, nature as this sort of uh, purely biological, purely needs-based system, right? It's nature is the beauty of humankind um, stripped away from the human animal. And then there's something else with uh, another meaning of nature, which is nature is those filial relationships between people. Um, and so we have um, we have those concepts kind of working together, I think. I don't know if they're working opposite, but they seem to be working together that uh, that, you know, you should have this kind of existing filial natural relationship with with your family, but also at the same time, the nature is a threat. Right. Nature is unreasoning. Um, it's not necessarily rationale. And also nature is stripped of that which is most human or humanizing. Okay. And then we see this kind of manifest in the end here when you see storm and tempest. Um, and that the storm and tempest literally breaks his heart. Right. It's, it's the word heart. You know, he he can't finish the line because storm and tempest interrupts that moment. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart, storm and tempest, shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. Oh, fool, I shall go mad. So the, the natural world, like, literally interrupts his, you know, the, the rhythm of his sequence and interrupts the word heart and breaks in between the word heart and break or shall break um and so the natural world is beginning to inject itself into this plot okay so where else do we see that or how do we see that draw out in the rest of this play
Okay, so um, well, let, let's let's go to a particular scene, and we'll go to three one. All right. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Oh, excuse me, not three one, three two. So three one is is Kent um, getting in trouble. With it, with a gentleman, which leads to him being stalked. But three, two, anyway. We have Lear and the Fool again, and this is, you know, very, very famous scene, very, very famous speech. Um, blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage blow you cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks, you sulphurous and thought executing fires. Vaunt courtiers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white hair, and thou, all shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of this world, crack nature's mold, all germane, spill at once that make in grateful man. Okay. And, um, you know, the fool's response, oh, nuncle. Nuncle is this kind of, like, term of endearment. It's, it's you know, it's the fool being sweet. Uh, court holy water in a dry house is better than this rain water out of doors. Good and uncle in, ask thy daughter's blessing. Here's a night pities neither wise men nor fools. Um, rumble thy belly full, spit fire, spout rain, nor rain, wind thunder. Fire are my daughters. I tax not you, you elements with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription. Then let fall your horrible pleasures. Okay, so... We get this, you know, this, this very famous kind of um, this call to the wild going on here. And how does this fit in with some of the themes of this play that we've discussed so far? Well, how does this how does this scene fit in with the themes that we've discussed so far? I think that's a good comparison um, that, you know, the the daughter's lack of love, their kind of lack of unnatural affection is, you know, tearing him apart. It's also torn the kingdom apart, you know, that he, he held in unison. There's some kind of uh, the rumblings of battle between the daughters coming up. Um, but 
yeah the, the kind of unnatural affection they bear for him which which means no affection um it, it's tearing him apart and so he goes into the natural world and you know uh you know kind of wants the weather to come up and pull him apart and so the weather you know the the nature sort of mirrors the internal state of these characters in Shakespeare's plays. You think of Richard III, who is um, uh, has physical ailments, um, you know, and that's supposed to mirror his, uh, or yeah, mirror his internal blackness. You know, the, the internal horror that he's capable of. You could see it in his physical form. Here, the the natural world the natural relationships in this family have fallen apart or they never really were there, but they're revealed to be dissolved, eroded, false. And so the natural world is kind of reflecting that it's, it's reflecting the social world at this point. Um, and I like how you're saying that, uh, Christina, that it is, um, it, it's kind of, he's asking it to tear him apart to kind of pull him down. Um, and he wants to be, you know, a kind of a servant to this world. Then let fall your horrible pleasures. Here I stand your slave, a poor, infirmed, weak, and despised old man. But yet I call you servile ministers that will with two pernicious daughters join your high engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. Um, so, yeah, he's still calling to you. He's still submitting to a a natural space that has gone kind of mad. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that, you know, that's what's happening right here. So, again, we have this kind of continuation of um, of nature and society. And nature is a place that's outside of the... Uh, you know, potentially rational human society. Um, and that's, that's kind of an, uh, uh, that's always there. It's always right on the outside and it's always a danger that the, you know, the, the better, you know, what, what you might call, you know, the better angels of our nature, that they fall away and that this Machiavellian politics can take over and that can bring people down to the level of beasts. And that seems to be, a lot of what's going on here. This play is about people being pulled down, be it Lear or Kent or Edgar, who, you know, is pulled, literally pulled into another identity. And here we have Lear kind of pulled into, into madness, somebody who's, who's stripped of his reason. Um, what do you guys thought of the, the fool character up to this point? We've gotten a lot from him, especially in act two. But what are your thoughts on the fool? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So what what is his role? What's the fool's role in this world? Or I'll ask this. What do you imagine before the fall of Lear, before Lear gives up his kingdom, so before this play, what role was the fool playing in court? And making fun of Lear, right? He's able to do that. And, he, you know, and in the play, what it's, you know, he's almost exclusively making fun of Lear. <laughs> you know, he's, and and what is his, uh, what is he making fun of Lear for? Mm-hmm. He's an old man, but he says, you know, um, you're old before your time. I would have you be wise before you're old. And so the the why is he saying Lear is not wise? Yeah, exactly. It's this, uh, you know, he divided up his kingdom without recognizing who he was giving it to. Uh, You know, the only reason he gave it to them and not to Cordelia was they said nice things about him. And the fool is the only person who's able to to tell him this, who's able to kind of tell him the truth. Um, And this is the the nature of fools. I don't know if we've talked about this already. I feel like we have. But in in court, or at least in the imaginings of court, the the fool would be the kind of comedian who could tell the truth. Um, the idea was you, you'd call them the fool. They were somebody who almost by definition lacked wisdom, but therefore, you know, and, and therefore you wouldn't need to take them seriously. But that also gives you the freedom to speak truthfully, right? That's sort of the irony of the fool. It's the person who uh, can give advice to the king. Um, and give sound advice. Now the king might not take it, probably won't take it, but the fool can speak, can speak truly. Uh, you know, we have, I can't remember the name of the play, but there's an Edward Albee play where there, one of the characters is um, older and, and mentally ill. And in the play, she says the truth. She says actually what's go- really going on in the play um, you know, it's a play where there's a lot of, of subterfuge and, and that type of thing. And um, she's older, she's mentally ill, she's also an alcoholic. And these things, these conditions, permit her to speak the truth because, you know, no one will take her seriously. Well, if, let's say, you tell, you know, your, your friend is doing something you're not particularly fond of, you telling them that, you know, hey, you should cut this out, you should not do this, that might lead to a fight. While if, you know, there's somebody you don't take seriously or somebody who's drunk or something like that and gives you the same advice, it's it's a lot easier to ignore that, right? It's a lot easier to say, oh, that person is X, Y, or Z. That person is a fool. You know, we don't have to listen. But um, the fact that those words aren't taken as seriously also gives that person the liberty to speak. There's less uh, There's less penalty for speaking 
for saying what's on your mind. And in the case of the fool, it allows him to speak the truth. Um, and in these depictions, Lear kind of enjoys it, right? We see in the uh, Column Fior version of King Lear that, uh, you know, that he kind of enjoys the fool's joking. And a lot of the fool's joking comes before the real tragedy of what Lear has done becomes recognized. Um, but that's that's kind of the fool here. And he's also, as you said, I think uh, Christina or Jude uh, said, he is uh, unusually devoted to, or she in the in the Ron film, is unusually devoted to to Lear and Lear's well-being. Um, and we see, let, let's kind of pick on that topic a little bit because that takes us into the second part and the last part of the play. We see Lear inspire a lot of devotion, right? From Kent, who Lear mistreats and Kent gives up a lot in order to get back into Lear's company. Um, and with Cordelia and France, who Cordelia seems genuinely inspired to restores Lear, restore Lear's place in the world in spite of the fact that she is severely mistreated. Um, so what are you guys' readings of the loyalty that Lear inspires, even as Lear is being stripped of his mental capacities? So maybe I'll, I'll ask the question in a different way. Um, why is it important that Lear be back on the throne? It doesn't have to be a right answer. You could just uh, try out try out your opinion or try a guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not fit. It's it's um, yeah. Okay, so they're not they're not fit, right? They're not prepared to be on the throne. Um, what else kind of inspire or what else inspires people to want to help Lear? Let's even take the throne out of it, right? Because he's he's an old man, he's going to die soon, you know. The the events of this play kind of speed it up. Um but why are people inspired, you think, to help Lear? Okay, well, let's, let's see. Let's go to Act 4, Scene uh, 2. And this is Goneril and Albany are in this scene. Um, and Edmund is here as well. Um, and, you know, so Oswald is that kind of servant who insults Lear. And um, Kent kind of stands up for Lear and Kent ends up getting the stocks 
which is just your you get locked your feet get locked in place for for a period of time um and we we see kind of through oswald the the tree you know oswald's a steward he runs the estate of of goneril um and we see the way oswald treats lear that this is a sort of out of order thing the steward shouldn't treat the king in this way um but here we have like albany and goneril so that that happens oswald leaves um and goneril and albany are talking uh and albany says to goneril this is line 29 oh goneril you are not worth the dust which the rude wind blows in your face i fear your disposition that nature which contemns its which contemns it origin excuse me contemns its origin cannot be boarded certain in itself she that herself will sliver and disbranch from her martial sap perforce must wither and come to deadly use goneril no more the text is foolish albany wisdom and goodness to the vile seem vile filth savors but themselves what have you done tigers not daughters what have you performed a father and a gracious aged man whose reverence even the head lugged bear would lick most barbarous most degenerate have you maddened could my good brother suffer you to do it a man a prince by him so benefited if that the heavens do not their visual visible spirits send quickly down to tame these vile offenses it will come okay um so what is what's albany's um argument here he's kind of making an argument to her what is that argument short in time so 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 the argument he's putting forward here is that um the you know you you're kind of by you are by the way you are goneril um sort of filthy and you can't see that you're acting out of time with nature and so therefore the heavens themselves are going to be a corrective they're going to come in and kind of correct this situation which is you know highlight this because this is uh, important to important to the nature of tragedy is that and it's especially important to a world in which there is a king or queen sitting on a throne um, ordained by God right Henry the Eighth the king two kings before this or two rulers before this um, one king before James kind of created the absolutist monarch. Um, just as Louis XIV did in France, which is, you know, the one king above all, and that this person is put in that position by God himself. Um, and that 
any kind of danger to the throne is a danger to the ordering that God lays out. And so what we have here is a world which is disordered. And so the, the society of man, um, which Lear sits at the center of, and which should have this kind of motion of inheritance, and we see that, you know, uh, the, the kind of negotiation with, with France and Burgundy in the first act, um, that once this society is disordered by kind of the cruelty of the children, but also by Lear, his mishandling of his position, um, once the society kind of erodes, uh, then the natural, which is kind of, you know, imbued with this divine spirit, is going to flood in and fix the problem. But what does fixing the problem mean in a play like this? It means kind of eradication, right? And that's the idea of tragedy. Tragedy is the setting right of wrongs, not through through the alleviation of a conflict. The conflict is kind of too embedded. It's too, it's, it's you can't go back on it, right? It's already happened. You, you can't reverse it. You know, this is, this is Hamlet, where the king is killed. Um, you can't unkill the king. And so therefore, though the world will be balanced again, um, the world has, the, the way things are has to be eradicated before it can be balanced. Um, and so, God, we, we go one out of time so quickly. 50 minutes is not enough time. Um, so anyway, I just want to talk quickly about the movie. Um, so... The movie has a lot of differences. First of all, it sort of strips away the Edmund Edgar plot. There is a blind person who almost <laughs> almost falls off a cliff. But um, outside of that, there are some major differences as well. So what did you guys think of the movie? Just any comments? Okay. <laughs> What did you think about the the sort of changes in terms of especially how Lear is is figured in this? Right? He's no longer Lear, um, you know, it's it's a version of Lear. Um, but Lear is a little different in terms of his past history. Right? So how does the movie, how does um Kurosawa invent that? How does Kurosawa or what past history does Kurosawa bring to Lear? Another way to say this is, how might the warlord in Ron, how did he get his three castles? So in the movie, he gets them by kind of brutal conquest and the people he kill, he ends up marrying their daughters off to his own sons. So the, his two eldest sons marry the daughters of the people he kill or the, the brother of the daughter who he blinds and leaves to live alone in a ruined castle. So the, the version of Lear in this isn't 
um, the kind of sympathetic old man who has made the poor choice of being unwise, who's you know made the choice of dividing up his kingdom among people who are simply flatterers, right? Who's, who's simply responding to kind of the narcissism of, of sycophants. The leer of this is kind of, is a, like a brutal guy, and the crimes of his imperialism, his crimes of his conquest, are coming back to visit him in the film. Um, he keeps running into, you know, the, the people he's harmed, and the the person who does the most damage is the daughter of his eldest son, who, uh, excuse me, not the daughter of his eldest son, the, uh, the wife of his eldest son, who was the daughter of the person he killed, who he killed in front of her. Um, and, you know, and, and the, it seems like the, co the consequence of his action is that blood begets blood. And there's a lot of it in Rand. It, it's a, it's a blood fest. Uh, but, it, it's a very interesting take on the movie. And it's also a, th a way of thinking about how Shakespeare can be put into, again, into different contexts, into different time periods, and how that can bring some kind of life or understanding to it. In this case, it's this idea of, well, how does someone become king of over a large period, a large, uh, not period, excuse me, a large track of land? Well, probably in a brutal way this is probably somebody who has lived a life um steeped in war and something like that and so that's what this this film brings to brings to the play now i wanted to touch on the end the end is is i think heartbreaking where he uh, holds the feather over cordelia's lips to see if she's alive and he thinks the feather moves so he he thinks she's alive um but we're, we are out of time for this week. So next up, we're going to do some stuff on um, Moliere and Neoclassical. I uh, try and read Moliere for next week. I'm going to spend the first class of next week, 10-5, uh, we're doing The Misanthrope. Um, and then I'll give you what ch chapters in The Empty Space. I'm going to spend a lot of time, I think, on 10-5 talking about... Um, neoclassical theater and and whatnot so try and have the misanthrope read but you know maybe try harder for wednesday than monday and i'll try and give you more time to work just in your project and not on the play and so i'll, I'll sort of lecture more on monday's class All right uh, any other questions Okay, if not, we're, we're all done. Thank you.